And the Highlanders have won a famous victory in the first match of Super Rugby Aotearoa. A sight that just a few weeks ago seemed scarcely possible. Eden Park is back in business, a capacity crowd of 43,000, and they are pouring in. It was a brilliant atmosphere. I think one of the best things about it was just seeing the, like, how many families and kids were there. It was actually pretty emotional, I'd say. It was, it was pretty cool to finally you know, be out and be in big crowds. and Yeah, it was pretty, pretty historic, I felt. Oh, being locked down for months and no sport to take the edge off it. So, yeah, this was great. I know so many people that went that wouldn't have gone otherwise. That was, that was cool. Well, I just said I've never been so happy leaving a match. Yeah, it's brilliant. So exciting. It was, it was a brilliant fantastic. match. The celebration yeah. of coming out of uh, lockdown too. Yeah, and I love, I love what they did at the beginning, talking about essential workers. So it was yeah. like, yeah, I was in tears. I have to say, I had, I'm not a huge rugby fan. Yeah. I mean, I had a bit of a lump in my throat. You yeah. know, and I got, we got up the stairs and then the, the Hercules plane yeah, flew right. over really low. And also lots of different kinds of people, I mm. thought. Like, you know, we, we saw a woman in stilettos and leather pants walking <laughs> down the road. Goals! Goals! Everyone within rugby was blown away, really. And I think they expected a, a flood of interest, but nothing on that scale, you know. That was the biggest crowd they've had for Super Rugby at Eden Park in 15 years. Those scenes at Eden Park yesterday, they were fantastic. I mean, I've never seen anything like it for many years. To see legends like you know Tana Umanga mm. and Dan Carter carrying drinks onto yeah, the yeah. field. The most overqualified water boys in history. We've got to make sure that we get the fans, give them the experience they want. And, you know, they've got to come along and say, this is a great thing to come along to. It's just not the rugby, it's a whole way that they can interact. Keep the fans happy, says former All Blacks coach John Hart. But can this be the turnaround for New Zealand rugby and its failing fortunes? I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, rugby writer Liam Napier talks about what has to change and whether those big crowds will last. That will wear off to a point. Uh, the the hunger to attend events um, will Do die. Do you think so? I think it will die off. What you have got is uh, the New Zealand teams and this competition, it's what... New Zealanders want to see. It's the best level of rugby um, that you could possibly hope for at that level. You know, um, like Bowden Barrett debuting for the Blues against his former team and then Dane Coles roughing him up on the field. Like mm. People love those sorts of things. The Blues and the Chiefs, they, they genuinely don't like each other and there's, there's rivalries, so people buy into that. Whereas when you've got the Sharks playing the Blues, pe- people just aren't as interested. So New Zealand v New Zealand is not only like a great level of rugby, but there's those spin-offs and, and you know, like in, in Dunedin you had um, Bryn Gatlin beating his, his father's team. Oh, they're going to try a drop goal, Mitch Hunt. No, in fact, it's Gatlin's. Oh, there you go. What have you just done to that? Bryn Gatlin. You know, you just don't get those things from the Super Rugby. Yeah. And it was a very tired format. People were sick of it and they messed around with it so much that they turned a lot of people away. So, Is this just an interim thing, uh, Rugby Aotearoa? It is at this stage, but they are reviewing where they go. So they've basically got a five-year broadcast deal for Super Rugby, which is 
14 teams round robin format that they've sold to the broadcasters for another five years, but then COVID hit mm. and, um, you know, made it unworkable, particularly with South Africa and Argentina, you know, with travel restrictions and uh, the airline industry and turmoil and they're working through where they go to next, whether it's a New Zealand only comp, whether it's um, a trans Tasman competition, it depends how the, how the borders go, but it's also a chance for New Zealand. They own this competition, you know. They don't have to ask anyone else to do things like like the rules or innovations, and, and um, I think they're really relishing that chance to have that, oh, that, that, that sort of autonomy. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because how much of rugby now is imposed from offshore? Yeah, so if, for example, with Super Rugby, if they wanted to do something, you know, they have to get um, unanimous agreement from... Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Argentina, from the four partners, and um, Japan were involved, but they didn't really have a seat at the table. Where now, if they want to do something, they just go ahead and do it. And it's the same with the test game, like World Rugby govern that. You know, they're trying to make changes to the global season at the moment, and and it's just impossible because you've got so much self-interest and so many different parties. But this competition, Super Rugby Aotearoa, New Zealand Rugby owns and operates and, and they can do what they want with it for the short period of time. And World Rugby it doesn't have any say at no all? No say. So, so World Rugby put out some potential rule tweaks in the, in the wake of COVID and New Zealand Rugby basically disregarded all of them and went ahead and did their own thing. So the reason why you're here, Liam, is, is to talk about New Zealand Rugby in dire financial straits. Would that be fair to say? That is true, but also... World rugby is in dire financial straits because the unions survive off the funding that comes from test rugby and that just can't be played at the moment. So you've basically had your revenue stream turned off overnight. The first signs of impact on our national game are set to be revealed by New Zealand rugby. News Hub understands NZR is preparing to cut staff salaries by 20% as it looks to counter the economic blow of COVID-19. You know, the All Blacks generally play 12, 14 tests a year and um, that money then flows through to Super Rugby, to the provincial unions, to the grassroots. But even pre-COVID, there's an acceptance that that model needs to change a bit, but, you know, nobody saw this coming. With no revenue from sponsorships, ticket sales and broadcasting in the coming weeks, rugby in this country needs to cut costs to offset the economic impact of COVID-19. And just to have your revenue stream turned off, like so many businesses, turn them upside down overnight and, you know, they've shed half their staff. The COVID-19 crisis has hit NZR hard. The chairman announcing today a 70% decline in revenues expected in 2020. That's why we had reserves in, ex- in excess of uh, $90 million for the rainy day. It just poured like hell. And there's no sign it will let up anytime soon. The All Blacks are the cash cow for NZR, but the home test in July and the rugby championship look to be in massive doubt. It's pretty grim. But it was kind of looking a bit grim even before this. For the financial year of 2019, Mm. they made a $7.4 million loss. Now, not as bad as they projected, but still a loss. And I guess it's hard to understand why. Should we start by saying where does the money come from? Sure. So I guess it comes from different... Avenues have got um, broadcasts, which has historically been the main revenue in New Zealand. In case that that's Sky, but they also get money from UK broadcasters. From the Sky money feeds into a Sansa pot, and then they also get revenue from Australia and South Africa, SuperSport in South Africa, and the like. Mm-hmm. So the revenue from broadcasters traditionally been the the major earner. 
but that's um, last year I think was the first year that that changed and, and sponsorship and licensing were outweighed broadcast. Mm-hmm. They also get uh, money from World Rugby. The World Cup is the the jewel that that funds the World Game basically. So last year when they had the World Cup, they got twenty million in compensation from World Rugby because they couldn't play the same amount of Test matches that they would in other years, and then they, they get X amount of of the funds that the World Cup generates. Sponsorship and licensing is, is is massive. AIG, whose sponsorship comes to an end, Adidas, uh, Gatorade, you know all these brands that they leverage and, and promote on on a global scale. Yeah, it's big business. But New Zealand's problem is that they they spend more than they earn. I think they've made one surplus in the last five years. So. It's expensive business, you know, the players earn a lot of money and they have an agreement where they get 36.5% of income. Show me the money. Remember that scene from the film Jerry Maguire? Tom Cruise is a sports agent negotiating a deal for an American football star played by Cuba Gooding Jr. Show you the money. Oh, no, no, you can do better It's not quite so drama-filled for the rugby stars, but they do suck out a big chunk of the income. The player payment pool takes more than 36% of New Zealand rugby's income. That's about $68 million in the last year. And the top All Blacks? Well, they take a large share of it, but they also bring in the, the lion's share as well. You know, without them, New Zealand rugby wouldn't be able to operate. They are the driver of revenue. They fund the game, essentially. Their ticket sales, their appeal to sponsors, you know, they are the absolute top of the tree, they drive the revenue. So while you've got uh, a number of those players earning great money in excess of $1 million a year and a, and a salary went before you take into account their endorsement deals, which they, they generally do on, on the side with their agents and things, they earn a, a great wicket. But on a global scale, uh, they could earn twice as much abroad in Japan and, and Europe and the like. So, yeah, they, they take a, a massive chunk of that revenue, but they also put a lot in. That does feed back down through the Super Rugby. And then there's the provinces, the 14 provincial unions. They get 650000 each year in a one-off grant from New Zealand Rugby that's been cut by 15% um, in the wake of COVID. But, um, like you said, pre- even pre-COVID, there was an acceptance that a lot of things need to be streamlined, you know, like academies and marketing but it is a model that needs to change in terms of the reliance on the All Blacks to fund the game. But how do they change? How do you stop being so reliant on the All Blacks? There are avenues you can explore. Private investment is one. It's not a golden ticket because private investment is a risk. Anytime you invite uh, somebody else into your business who is looking to make a stake over a certain amount of time and you and you have to give up control. So it's a very uh, fraught space. Each Super Rugby team in New Zealand, all the five teams, have private investment, but it's in a very controlled fashion where New Zealand Rugby still own and control the, and pay the players. And then what they do is they sell licensing so the, the private investors can invest in the licensing of the Super Rugby, but... The Super Rugby teams don't get a direct stake in the broadcast revenue um, and they're restricted to a certain degree in what sponsors they can leverage and various other things. So it's a, that space is um, being challenged at the moment. You know, the Super Rugby teams to 
to attract more private investment to take some of the cost away from New Zealand rugby. They want more control. They want more flexibility in what they can do. And that's probably where you would see New Zealand rugby welcome more private investment into the rugby championship as a tournament or super rugby or direct investment into these super rugby teams, which would um, create a a bit of an influx of, of revenue What kind of private investors would you get? So what you've seen in Europe is a company, or one company in particular, called CVC Capital Partners. They are based in Luxembourg, and they previously invested in the the Formula One and the like. They've bought up stakes in the English Premiership Rugby, the uh, Pro 14, which encompasses teams from uh, Italy, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and South Africa. And they're a financial company? Yeah, so they're a, a private investment company that has invested in, in various things over the years. We're, we're investing behind the change in media consumption in sports. So okay, so this everything is the, we do is behind that change. Not gambling. Not gambling. It's, it's the change in how people consume content. And that can be design companies, that can be activation companies, streaming companies, technology. And so they've identified rugby as a real growth area. Mm-hmm. They're also get in talks to invest in the Six Nations. It's big money, you know, you're talking £300 million, some of these deals. That's one avenue. There are other companies. There's Silver Lake. Uh, New Zealand Rugby has, has held informal discussions with CVC and Silver Lake, and there's another one. Who's Silver Lake? Silver Lake are a, a US-based investment company as well, and they, they have ties to sport previously with the, the UFC. There are a lot of opportunities out there in this space. It's just a matter of navigating it where you get that investment, but you don't lose total control. And even then, it's it's a bit of a, a fraught space. What would be fraught about it, that they would want some sort of control in some area? If you look at CVC, there were claims when they invested in Formula One that they pillaged the sport, and they were very direct about their control and... Yeah, it's, I guess it's important to have a relationship where you, you want to be on the same page with your vision for the game. The other attraction with these investment companies, a lot of them have expertise in, in marketing. And like, let's be blunt about it, they're, they're, they're not investing just for a laugh. They're investing for a return on their invest, investment. So mm. there's things in, in rugby that they're looking to develop, like the Super Rugby Champions um, play the best of the North. And that game could be staged at Barcelona Stadium and marketed to global broadcasters. And so these are the sort of things that, you know, CVC uh, attracted to. They, they see these potential avenues to grow the game, to, to grow interest. Uh, there's no sort of deal that's imminent. But I also feel like, to a point, it's inevitable. Uh, now, New Zealand rugby, I think, will be very cautious about... Uh, any direct private investment into the All Blacks per se, but they would be a lot more open to that at Super Rugby level because that would take some of the costs away for them um, and allow them to to do something with that competition because it, it needs a, a major overhaul. The sponsorship. With AIG going, they're looking at a deal of around $300 million. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. Um, the I think AARG sponsorship was worth about 120 million over five years. That was for all national teams. So, you know, New Zealand Rugby rebranded uh, their teams, the the National Sevens, the New Zealand Māori, uh, all the All Blacks, which was 
controversial because there is only one All Blacks team. Mm. But when you do that, you I guess from a sponsorship point of view, you can then take those teams to certain destinations, particularly in Canada and, and America where, uh, you know, AIG were based and, and take games to Chicago as I've done previously and, and really market that. So that increases that level of investment um, from, from sponsors and, and desirability. And I think the All Blacks have only, you know, increased in, in value and, and so that, that space on the jersey that they're looking to sell, they'll be looking to maximise that. With year after year of, of losses, where does it leave grassroots rugby or even women's rugby? Yeah, it's um, massively challenging, particularly with, with COVID. There was a, a worry that the women's game in particular would be one of the first to suffer. And if you look at the Warriors, it's similar across other sports. That was almost where the investment was looked at first. And from a New Zealand rugby perspective, they have a real obligation to fund the women's game. Female numbers have, in recent years, um, gone berserk on the back of um, their investment in, in the Black Ferns. The Black Fern Sevens team are the best on the circuit by a long way. And the Black Fern Sevens are on their way home with extra luggage in tow after their stunning World Cup win. Guy Havelts caught up with them post-celebrations. The next generation in awe of their world champion superheroes. The day after their crowning glory, the Black Fern Sevens the centre of attention, showing off their sparkling prize. To take a Rugby World Cup home to New Zealand is, a, um, is amazing and I can't wait to um, show the public uh, what it looks like. There's so many role models in those teams that um, uh, young females uh, gravitate towards and, and, and look up to. And then the Farah Palmer Cup this year, I know the New Zealand government put a bit of pressure on New Zealand rugby to, to stick with that, particularly because we're hosting the, the Women's World Cup here next year. So it was imperative that our Women's 15s players had that platform to, to build on going into next year. So what has happened with them? Have they t- so taken committed, a hit? They, they, they've committed to, to that competition. Um, right. but, but there was a bit of uncertainty there for a while about um, how that was going to go. There was sort of radio, radio silence for... I don't know, the best part of a month. You know, New Zealand Rugby announced um, Super Rugby, Aotearoa, and uh, and the Mighty Ten Cup, the, the men's provincial competition, but there wasn't any detail on what was happening with the women's game for, for a while. And, and I that think led there was to, one angry player yeah, on Twitter who Wellington, was um, stuck in. A player who, who piped up and, and good on her. Alice Soper has opened a real can of worms here. The Wellington women's rugby player making much mainstream media noise after a Twitter post bemoaning, and I quote, the lack of clarity around the resumption of women's rugby, unquote. Nothing better than a good old-fashioned sexist ding-dong to rile the scribes, is it? The implications from Alice are that both New Zealand rugby and the media are at fault for leaving players like herself in the dark over their futures. Put a bit of heat on them and... And a couple of weeks later, they they did commit to that. I know Grant Robinson was in regular discussions with them as well, and and they might have potentially got some some funding for that. But you see, this is the thing that I think can get people's backs up. You get the complaints that it's still a sexist, misogynist sport when you see this happen. I think you've got every right to ask questions about, um, you know, equality in the game and, and particularly when female numbers, they now represent one-fifth of all playing numbers in New Zealand. So there needs to be a commitment to that women's game, and I think there is.
but COVID brought that into light again and, you know, put some heat on New Zealand rugby to, to step up and, and show that. I think there's also a need to, to attract more sponsorship to make make the game more viable. The women's game, you yeah, mean? Yeah, because um, while the playing numbers are there, the, the viewership numbers aren't always. Um, the Women's Rugby World Cup did have some, some great viewership, the last one, that, that really exploded. And hopefully that that's true of the one that, that we're preparing to host here next year as well. Mm. Um, but like the men's game, there's always need for, for ad, ad revenue to, to make it sustainable. But yeah, I think the, the grassroots in general is suffering and will suffer in, in the wake of COVID, both for, for men's and women's game. What's your feeling as a rugby journalist, you know, as someone who's obviously passionate about it? Uh, I'm concerned, I guess. This isn't 1960s New Zealand where every male gravitated towards the sport naturally. It's a very different world for young New Zealanders. They've got so much more choice. Esports, basketball is really popular. And there is also a lot more concerns around the safety of the game, the size and the strength of athletes, the concerns about concussion and you know a real disconnect also between the schools and the clubs and and the way the game is run at schoolboy and female level even that they put so much of a focus on creating these professionals at a young age that they actually turn kids who aren't going to make that stage away from the game so that's something that really needs to be worked on and, and, and fixed and then those players who turn away from the game don't go and play for their clubs so the, the clubs suffer and, and there's a number of clubs dying off around the country and that's the ha, traditionally been the, the real lifeblood mm. of, of the New Zealand game so there's a real drop off in, in teenagers so there's a major major challenges for rugby in New Zealand to face and I think there's a real lack of understanding of just what the All Blacks have achieved over the years and that's, that's under major threat. You know, we, we lost the last Rugby World Cup and our primacy at the top of the world is under more threat than ever and that's only going to potentially get worse because the, the numbers coming through aren't what they used to be. Our connection with the game hasn't been what it used to be and the financial side of it is incredibly challenged. So there's a lot of challenges, a lot of pressure points, and so um, you know it's going to take some real leadership to keep the All Blacks where they have been. Do you think it is a dying sport then? I think dying is probably a bit strong, but as we sit and coming out of the rebuild and COVID, it's probably just coming off life support. You know, any business that's projecting to lose 70% of their revenue and, and cut half their staff and had you know cuts across the board is in a, a pretty uh, tenuous position so it's a big job for the people at the helm of the game That's it for today I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform if you're using Apple, give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Liam Napier. Kakite anō. Ka